2: This is Richard. Just after we recorded this episode about stolen data and identity theft, it turned out that things are even worse than we thought. The personal data of more than 22 million people was stolen from government computers, and now the head of the Office of Personnel Management has resigned. The government doesn't seem to be able to protect its data. So what can you do to protect yours? We find out in this episode.
1: What if we had a show about solutions? You know, a repair manual for the real world. Not the same old left versus right. I am right, I'm right. and you are wrong. Yeah.
2: Wrong. Boring. Boring. <laughs> yeah, something new. Yeah, something new. How to make the world a better place. Yeah. How do we fix it? How do
0: we fix it? How do we fix it?
2: It's Episode 8, Hacking, Breaches, and Your Threat of Being a Victim of Identity Theft.
0: I'm Richard Davies with my friend... Jim Meggs. On today's show, we look at a huge problem that threatens just about all of us. This year, as many as 17 million people will be victims of identity theft. There have been countless breaches of corporate and government data putting our personal data at risk.
2: And Jim, the problem is getting worse. And I know that you probably know more about this than I do until very recently because I've become a a recent victim of identity theft, a little bit more about that later. To help us look at how bad the threat is to all of us, we've called in Adam Levin. And few people know more about this whole thing than he does.
0: Adam is chairman and co-founder of Credit.com and the company IDT911. He was New Jersey's former director of consumer affairs as well.
2: Let's start with how big a threat this is, the, the problem of, of data breaches and identity theft. This
3: is a pandemic. We've already gone beyond virus. We've gone past epidemic. This is now a worldwide pandemic. And it doesn't look like it's going to be getting any better soon. It is depressing. When people say there's fear-mongering going on in the identity theft world, there isn't enough fear-mongering. I don't think
2: people understand how devastating this thing could be on so many levels. Well, you say there's not enough fear-mongering. Why not? Give me an example of what is, in your mind, the scariest thing that's happened recently.
3: Well, I think the Office of Personal Management, which... um, This is the government... This is the government. They they are the... Think of them as the Human Resources Department for the United States government. And they announced a breach, uh, a breach that's been ongoing. And it started with one subcontractor that was a background check company, then a second subcontractor that was doing background checks. They then crawled into the Office of Personal Management system. And what's tragic is... The only way that OPM, Office of Personal Management, actually found out it was going on is as they were installing finally a radically upgraded security system and as part of the sales uh, presentation, a, a cybersecurity company noticed something, then they all noticed something and they said, wait a minute, we, we've got a serious problem.
0: And and this is the office that handles background checks for all different branches of the government. So. Whoever's sitting on all this data, presumably the Chinese, knows everything about everybody. I mean, it's it's not just uh, putting these individuals at threat. It's a national security issue.
3: No, it's a national security issue. These individuals are a threat. Their family members. Because when when you do background checks, they talk to your family members, they talk to your friends. You could have just been the roommate of somebody who went through a security check and they don't have all your information, but they have a great deal of your contact information and are are in a position to spear fish you, which frankly, a lot of
2: foreign powers are really good at. So how many people have had their personal data compromised by this hacking alone of of OPM, Office of Personnel Management? Well, the initial
3: estimate was 4.2 million, which now they're saying could be anywhere between 18 and 30 million. They're still trying wow. to sort through the information because wow. there have been something like 30 million uh, background checks in the past 30 years. We're talking about data that they've accumulated and retained unencrypted for some 30 years. That's It's mind-blowing. Outrageous. You say it's a national security problem. Why? It's a national security problem because a foreign power in possession of this information not only will know where people are where family members are but they'll also know all their weak spots because there'll be psychological evaluations there'll be a lot of information in there about things that people have never told their spouses now they could be subject to extortion they could be subject to blackmail where they could use this as a way of putting malware on every system in every government agency around the world if they wanted to. Wow.
0: And one thing we know about the Chinese government, their system of spying is very different from the old Cold War, well-trained agents. They recruit Uh, Chinese nationals and other people in a very informal ad hoc way Uh, and they'll get people in working for defense contractors or all kinds of different organizations so now they know about anybody that's connected with the government and it gives them a real shopping list for this style of espionage that they've shown to be very good at.
3: And I think the important thing that people have to grasp is that the Cold War has been replaced by a much hotter war and it's the cyber war. Who knows what we've done in
2: China or in Russia? They're certainly not going to say. So you think that probably China and Russia know a great deal more about us than we know about them or that that we think they know?
3: Uh, I think that's... Well, certainly as a result of this, they're they're going to know a great deal more about us. Now, that doesn't mean we haven't done it to them. They just mm-hmm. don't issue press releases. Mm-hmm. But this is extremely worrisome. And when you have the head of the agency sitting in front of Congress saying... I found systems that were such a disaster that I'm trying to sort through these legacy systems that you couldn't even encrypt. They were so old. I mean, the IRS has even said that some of their systems go back to the Kennedy administration. I mean, we're living in a world where, you know, we are in an arms race in the cyber war and we've got
2: to stay up and we're just not as up as we should be. I think that most consumers became aware of this being a really big problem with the target breach. Yes there was a huge data theft at Target and then other retailers have also had their data taken as well. So there's that side of this whole problem of when we give our information to companies, it's at risk.
3: Not only that, but when we don't even know we're giving information to companies, when they're buying lists from other companies. You know, there was a case not too long ago where, I guess it was Radio Shack in bankruptcy, decided they were going to sell Uh, their customer lists and, and their whole database. And, you know, a lot of people got up in arms, and many attorneys general throughout the country by saying, wait a minute, when people do business with you, they look at your privacy policy. And if your privacy policy says, we don't sell, we don't share, and then you go into bankruptcy and suddenly you sell and share... Who knows where it's going to? Who knows what they're going to do with it? But yes, we have had a series of wake-up calls in this country. I call them Paul Revere moments. Mm -hmm. The only problem is that oftentimes when a Paul Revere moment occurs, instead of rising to the occasion immediately, people tend to sit back and go, well, let's see how many of the enemy really show up before we decide to go out in the streets. And that's the problem. Target was the first big iconic breach that people focused on. And people focus more on the credit card breach than they do on the second breach, which was names, addresses, phone numbers, email addresses. And that opens you up to what we call the pantheon of ishings. You have (laughs) phishing and spear phishing, which when somebody comes at you via email, you have smishing when somebody comes at you via text, because you think it's some institution. You
0: assume that text is only people can text your people that have a legitimate reason to do so. Right,
3: and then there's vishing, which is phone-based phishing, and that's when people call you, but because it's over internet, it's VOIP, Voice Over Internet Protocol, you see a phone number that's not the real phone number. So you think it's the government, you think it's a business, and it's not. It's actually hackers and identity thieves that are trying to get as much information out of you as possible.
2: This is pretty depressing. And I get the sense you're really passionate about it. So, Adam, take me back. I mean, how did you get involved in this, and how did you become so interested and and passionate about this problem? Well, it started years
3: ago when I was head of consumer affairs in New Jersey, and a third of the complaints that we received related to credit. And so years later, when somebody approached me about starting a credit education company, which is now credit.com, I wanted to be part of this. I thought it was very exciting. In 2003, I was approached by friends who had a legal services firm, and they said that they wanted to make a bid on a particular credit card portfolio to be the legal services organization, but that they felt that their bid could be more robust if they had an identity theft component. So they said, do you know anybody in the space? So uh, my business associates and I, we looked around, and we noticed that everybody in the space was either a marketer, a broker. Um, some kind of PR firm, somebody... So they that... weren't
0: really working for the consumer?
3: No. No company had ever been created for the specific purpose of putting people back together again when they became victims of identity theft, because this, this is a life-altering situation. Even something as now small as a credit card, because there's zero liability, uh, has got people pretty rattled. But when you start moving up the food chain and you go to debit cards, which opens up your bank account, then you go to true name identity theft, then you get to medical and criminal and tax fraud, uh, all forms of identity theft, and then ultimately synthetic. And that's where they would take uh, one name and address, another Social Security number, another date of birth, put it together, create a bionic person, uh, basically a subfile, and they would open accounts. They would do all sorts of horrible things with it. And the trail of breadcrumbs ultimately leads back first to the Social Security number and then to the name and address, because a lot of people don't realize that when background checks are done, it's name match. And if you're having a background check done and it's name match, and you come up with something, even though it's not you, and somebody else comes up clean and you are two equally credentialed people going for the same job, they're going to get it. Hmm. Because any employer is going to go, I don't want to know. Mm -hmm. And I could be wrong, maybe not, but I don't want to know.
0: Richard, you were a victim recently of a debit card situation, weren't you? Yeah, that's
2: one reason why we're doing this show,
0: (laughs) (laughs) because it affects
2: me. Um, Yes, I was. I had to change my credit card, and that was like, okay, every six months, it seems. I get a call from the bank, and they say, somebody spent an outrageous amount of money claiming it was you with your credit card number at a retailer like CVS or or Best Buy or something, they bought a computer or, and, and that's not a big problem. And so we just change the credit card number and move on. That's happened to me a bunch of times. But this was weird. This was four different examples of somebody using my debit card. No, and, I, and, and that was like, whoa, that's closer to home because that's not as easy to resolve. No, that's correct. Because
3: oftentimes they use the debit card as a wedge to get into your bank account. And remember, the difference between a credit card and a debit card, well, there are many, but one in particular is with a credit card, it's their money. With a debit card, it's your money. And even if you're right, and even if the financial institution agrees with you, and they do have a specific period of time where they do have to return the money, for a period of perhaps 7 to 10 days, that money is untouchable. If you need that for rent, groceries, tuition, Mortgage payments—you got a problem. You're going to end up with a late fee. You're going to have a lot of other issues. Yeah, I've had a whole bunch
2: of things to resolve. Yeah.
0: Let's get into some of the solutions now that we're we're suitably uh, <laughs> sobered and depressed <laughs> and <appalled>. uh, <laughs> Let's let's talk about it and maybe working our way up from the individual level up to what what can we do as a matter of national policy on this.
2: Sure.
3: Well, let's start with individuals. Yes, with individuals, I call it that. People now have to exercise the three M's, which was minimize your risk of exposure. Monitor and manage the damage. Now, for minimizing your risk, you do all the things that people tell you. You don't carry your social security card. You limit the amount of credit and debit cards you carry. You secure your computer. You secure your smartphone. You know, people look at a smartphone and they go, it's a communication device. Uh uh-uh. uh it is a data storage device and unfortunately people are storing more data on their smartphones than they even are in their computers so when you say secure your smartphone what do you mean well you can you can get security software for your smartphone you also have to make sure that the the pin that you use to lock the phone isn't a silly pin. A silly pin is one, two, three, four, nine, eight, seven, six, these kinds of things. Now, and there are companies out there that are developing new ways now. Instead of pins, they're coming up with perhaps emojis. They found that, that emojis are easier to remember.
2: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
3: and that, uh, that they're more difficult to replicate the pattern mm-hmm. that you can develop. Mm-hmm. But, you don't, but then don't do a rational pattern like monkey see, monkey do, monkey here. You know, you have to do different things.
2: Well, one thing that is a problem are all those companies that want your social security number. I mean, they're a bunch. No. Um, they, they, and, and so what do you do about, about that, about throwing your social security number around?
3: Well, I think the first step is you have to say to yourself, is it logical that the people who are asking for my social security number should have my social security number? There aren't too many terribly logical things. For instance, doctors. You you go to a new doctor and right on the form along with every other thing you see, they ask for your social security number. The truth is they have your insurance information, and the insurance company has your social security number, and in many cases you can't get out of the doctor's office without Using your credit card, mm-hmm. so as a result, it's not really that necessary for them to have it. So tell them no. So say no. Oh, one other thing I love is when they say, "Well, you know, we need it for your death certificate." You say, "You know what? When I die, call my lawyer, call my accountant. Don't worry about it."
0: So that's part of the. That's part of um, minimize. And how do you monitor? Mm-hmm. That means you need to get
3: free credit report every year at AnnualCreditReport.com. You come to sites like credit.com where you can get a free overview of your credit and free scores that are updated monthly. If your score takes a drop, that could be an indication. You need to check your accounts as as, as you've been doing, Richard, right, yeah, on going, a daily going, basis. Checking, yeah. checking
2: my bank account every day and my credit card. You know, and
3: consistent? you can sign up for transactional alerts, which is where they, they notify you anytime there's activity in your account. You can also get more sophisticated forms of monitoring. And the last thing is manage the damage. Now, a lot of people don't realize that through their insurance company their credit union some of the smaller banks and even the hr departments where they work there are programs that are available to help consumers get through an identity theft nightmare but they don't know they're in it right so what you need to do is contact your insurance agent your representative at your financial institution the hr department work and say do you have a program am i in it if not what do i have to do to get in it is it free what's it going to cost when they give you that information, then you need to make the decision. But it's one of the best investments you could make.
0: And there are a number of online services like LifeLock that, that say they, they can help people protect their, uh, their data and, and manage all of their accounts. What, what do you think of these kinds of services?
3: Well, there are a number of services that are very good. And you know, some of them feature specifically what they call instant alert, which is instead of saying someone opened an account in your name a week ago... They actually send you a notice saying someone is attempting to open an account right now in your name. Is it you? Yes or no? That's very important. The key thing when you're looking at these different services is look at what identity protection services they offer, not just the technology, not just the monitoring, which is critical, but also what will they do for you in the event that you suffer a problem. And if you go to the Consumer Federation of America, they have a site idtheftinfo.org they will actually give you a list of the kinds of things you need to think about and the questions you should be asking any time you're determining whether or not you want to use identity theft services from anybody, if you're in control of of the communication, if you go to a specific website, if you call a specific financial institution that you know because the number is on the back of your credit or debit card or your bank statement, that's one thing. And if they ask you to, to authenticate yourself, that's logical. But if someone just calls you and starts asking for information, don't give it. Hang
2: up. Get the right number. Call them. I'm an online shopper. Mm-hmm. what should I be doing I mean I'm, I'm get, I have a password a login for all kinds of different outfits
3: well first of all do not share passwords throughout your universe you know a lot of people have a tendency to use the same password everywhere or to use an easily decipherable password so you need long and strong passwords numbers letters symbols uppercase lowercase uh, punctuation those kinds of things um, so that's very important when it comes to online. The second thing is, where you can use two-way
2: authentication, use it. What is that? What is two-way authentic- well, a- the, authentication?
3: Well, yeah, there are varieties of way. One is where, and some financial institutions use it, is you select a picture, and you enter in your, your login, your, your user ID, then the picture comes up. Now if it's not the right
0: picture, do not enter your password, run. Right. I think a lot of people haven't really thought through just their vulnerability with their phones. Um, What do you think of the thumbprint identification that we're seeing on a a lot of phones today?
3: I think it's good. I think, you know, it's one step closer to the biometrics that we really need in order Mm. to give us another additional
2: layer of security. Let's go to companies. What can companies do? Because Target was an example, as it turned out, of a company that really (laughs) didn't do a very good job of protecting my data. So... What companies need to do a few things. Uh,
3: First, they've got to encrypt data end to end. Got to encrypt it. Second thing, they need to use two-factor authentication for anybody getting into any system for that company. Mm -hmm. They need to segment the data. They can't have normal operational data with the data that they're holding on their consumers or their employees. They don't understand the most precious asset they really have is that data. They also need to train. They also need to have penetration testing where outside independent companies try to break into their systems. So drills, they need to drill. And then they need to drill not only on that, but they need to drill when the inevitable happens. Breaches have become the third certainty in life. That's reality. Mm -hmm. So they need to have a plan in place that what happens from the moment you have a problem, Who do you call? What do you do? How do you interact with your consumers? And it has to be urgency, transparency, and empathy. If you miss any of those, you're in trouble. And how do you think most companies are doing on that? So far, terrible, terrible. So we need a lot of work here. Now, I know that a lot of them have created these ISACs, which are these groups of companies in different areas that are sharing threat information and giving each other tips on how to work. Mm -hmm. The government is also trying to encourage it through a number of proposed pieces of legislation, none of which seems to be
2: passing anywhere yet. But if we live long enough, maybe we'll see it. Well, moving on to government, what about those? What about proposed pieces of legislation?
0: Yeah, there's that Bill Nelson bill in the Senate, right? uh, Is that a step in the right direction?
2: I mean, a number of them are stepping in the right
3: direction. Uh, The Leahy bill is a particularly good one, Mm -hmm. and and that's where they're expanding the definition of personal identifying information. You know, for years there's been a very narrow definition of what you have to report if there's a breach. Email, for the longest time, never made it on that list. But when you have a name... And an email address, and oftentimes that email address contains where they work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know a lot more about somebody than they really want you to to know. On top of which, oftentimes email addresses are the user ID on a lot of websites. So if they have your email address, they have one half of the login credential that they need to get in to uh, to your different
0: accounts. That's good advice for for individuals. I'm worried that as a nation, we seem to be sliding backwards against the current when it comes to the risk that we're exposed to as we as we share data with more and more Institutions, is there a is there a national uh, data protection policy we need? Is it something we just need to keep tackling in a more ad hoc way?
3: No, we need to. Well, we need a, a better policy. The problem that a lot of uh, organizations have complained about is if you set a standard, literally, when everybody complies with the standard, the bad guys have moved on to the next level. Mm-hmm. So it, it really has to be sort of an organic standard. Mm-hmm. But we've all, we're all in this together. This is a collaborative effort between government, business, consumers and media. We need to educate. We need to train people in order to how to do this properly. We need to bring these issues up to the board level with corporations, and the politicians have to get more serious about
2: this. Adam Levin, thanks very much for coming in. If people want to know more, where do they go? They can come to either credit.com or idt911.com.
3: And you even do a podcast. I do. I do. On credit.com. Yes, we we do a daily podcast on credit issues.
2: Adam Levin. Thanks very much. Thank you for inviting me. So, Jim, Adam Levin makes a whole bunch of points about how big this problem is. And I don't think he's exaggerating when he calls it a pandemic. I used to think that Adam, who I've spoken to for, for years for different personal finance stories, was a little bit out there in terms of crying wolf over this problem, but I really don't think he oh, is anymore. absolutely
0: not. And, you know, all of these medical, epidemiological metaphors are, are so appropriate to this problem. It's not that there is, you know, that one thing might happen to you, you might, you know, face one kind of risk. It's there all the time so it's more like the the viruses the pathogens in the environment you need an immune system that's constantly fighting this stuff off
2: and I think that one thing we've simply gone beyond is the ability to turn ourselves off it's not as if it's easy at
0: all anymore to have no online presence. Right. That is not the answer. Right. And, and I think, you know, there's, there's the immediate story is what can we do as individuals to do a better job? What can companies do a better job of protecting us? There is a kind of a meta story here that might be a good subject for another podcast. Where are we headed as a society when we all emit these giant clouds of data that might be used for all sorts of purposes? Not all of them as nefarious as stealing your money. Uh, but possibly, you know, trying to figure out how you're going to vote and how we might influence the way you might vote and other things that I find worrisome. And I think that we all need to be thinking more about about who has this access to this kind of digital profile of who we are, even if they're not trying to steal anything from us. Do we really want to share that much and hand that much power to, you know, a... A relatively small number of of organizations.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that probably you worry about the government more than I do. And I I worry about Facebook
0: and Google, frankly. Yeah, I mean,
2: I'm concerned about companies as well and how much they know about us. And I do think that it's the job of the government to at least protect consumers in... uh, Passing legislation that means people are better informed, yeah, yeah. and, but, and yeah. they have the right to know what these companies, what these government agencies know about us. That's
0: exactly the right role, I think, for government is is helping empower us to you know to challenge these corporations and stuff. But at the same time, you know, you know, I'm writing a book about disasters. One of the funny things you see again and again, sometimes safety technology is added to a complicated system like a nuclear power plant, and then the safety technology breaks in some way that actually causes an accident. You you can't you can never be 100% safe. I I don't like too much centralization of of any of this. So I think even with the government solutions, we need to be careful we're not actually creating a bigger opportunity for something like this outrageous Office of Personnel Management breach, which is going to reverberate for decades.
2: Yeah, I, I think that what's very disturbing about the Office of Personnel Management breach is that no heads have rolled. Nobody's been funded. Incredible. I mean, come
0: on. Incredible. Incredible. And you know, and this is one reason I'm somewhat of a skeptic of big government solutions is because there isn't that kind of accountability. Nobody loses their own money. And and but these days it seems like nobody even loses their job. I, I'd like to see there be solutions from
2: all different areas, including big government, small government, companies. I feel we have to tackle this on all kinds of different levels. That there isn't one single answer for this problem because it's just like a virus in our society. Yeah. And uh, I think we're only beginning to come to terms with it.
0: Yeah. No. This will be a, this. This is going to be a, a, a question for the for the decades. I mean, it's just part of the world we live in.
2: But just to underline what Adam was saying, I think it's really important that everybody, (laughs) I've learned this personally, monitors their information and finds out as much as they can so that they can protect themselves. Yeah,
0: yeah. You can't go dark on terms of your credit or, or in terms of the internet. So the only alternative is keeping tabs on it. Well, uh, good show, Richard.
2: Our thanks to producer Miranda Schaefer, audio engineer Denise Barberita at Mono Lisa Studio. And music by Lou Stravinsky. The show is a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts and digital audio for companies and nonprofits. Davies Content. We tell your story. Contact us at DaviesContent.com Content at gmail.com.
0: If you say thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.
2: (laughs) Great. Okay.
1: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.